guys doing good today? Oh, God, I'm so glad to be back again. Um, I've, had, uh, I've been working nights, and so this is going to be one of those uh, Java and Jesus sermons where uh, just it's, it's going to be really fast and, and really you know, repetitive, and I'm going to say things, and I'll probably say things I don't mean, and so if I say things really fast, I just, y'all need to just listen faster because it's going to be one of those days where I just kind of like, you know what I mean, just kind of up there. So um, I hope you guys are doing good. Like I said, it's always an honor to be here amongst family at, at, at church here at Impact City. This is our church. This is, this is our family. This is our community. We like we say here, somos familia is what we say here at Impact City, that, that we are close. We are family, all of us here. Even guests that come in, we just want to welcome you as, as family, as, as just, you know, people together, uh, living life together. And just let me real quickly just kind of define that uh, for a moment, just let me define church, because I think for a lot of us, we have this idea of church that may be construed and kind of be messed up from what God really defined church to be. And we always say here at Impact City that we're not here to redefine church, but rather refine it back to the way that God originally defined it. Does that make sense? That we're not here to change the way church is or kind of invent a new way to do church. We just want to do church the way God intended it. And this is what church really is. Um, the church is basically, it's, it's not a building. Um, you know, when you, people think about the word church, maybe they think about like a building. They think, oh, we're going to go to this, this building. Maybe it's got a steeple. Maybe it doesn't have a steeple. Maybe it has a cross. Maybe it doesn't have a cross. You know, maybe it's got bright neon lights on it. Whatever it is, you know, it's not a building. People might think, well, church is this loud service where, you know, uh, music is playing, and there's like a laser light show probably going on. There's like a, I know there was a car on stage or something. Like, like that's not church. Or maybe you think the opposite. You think, oh, well, church is like, I, I picture this, this quiet, small country church with a choir and, you know, people singing. And, and they think that that is church. Many people might think church is a, a giant organization ran by people like priests and bishops and, and a, a guy named a, you know, called the Pope that changes his name every so often. You know, like whatever it is that you think churches, you know, whatever you think that might be, I want you to know that all of those are not church. They are a part of a church. They are a part of, of they're included in church, but they are not the definition of church. The definition of church is basically this, a group of people gathering together to follow Christ, to live on mission for Christ, and to worship Christ together, together as one. As a community of believers living life on mission together, worshiping Christ. And that might look different all around the world. You know, because right here, this is what, what church looks like to us. But across the world, churches, you know, five or six people gathering in a home to meet and, and worship God in, you know, in secret because it's against the law to worship church. Or maybe your church is, you know, in a, in a tribe in Africa somewhere where you don't have musical instruments. And the only way you praise God is by singing, you know, a cappella style. Or maybe you're dancing to worship. You know, maybe your church is a big, awesome you know, centuries-old building. That is church, but whatever church is, is different around the world. But there's one thing, or three things that have to be there for it to be a church. People coming together to worship Christ, people living on mission for Christ, and people following, that means obeying His commands, Christ. That is the church right now. And so, like I say, it looks differently all over the world, but if you wanted to see the way church looked like here in Impact City, just simply take a selfie. 
Like, seriously, just take a selfie. Now you don't have to do it right now. I hope somebody's like, oh, I want to. He gave me the excuse to take a selfie today. Like, no, whatever it is, just look in the mirror. That is church. You are the church. Every single one of you here in the room is the church. You have uh, the responsibility that, that you carry the hope of Jesus Christ to the world. You have the responsibility of, of doing the mission of God because God is now in spirit and you are the hands and feet of Jesus. You are the church. So whenever people say, uh, whenever I say the word church, I'm, I, I'll often call you guys church, or I'll call you guys beloved. And sometimes you're like, why is he calling me beloved? Like, oh, you don't love me. You know, like, that's what, that's how, you know, Paul called the church. He goes, the beloved people of Corinth, or the beloved people in Rome, the church in Rome, whatever, whatever I say, I mean you guys. When I say church, how y'all doing today? Church, y'all say what? Doing good? Y'all, I mean, you guys are asleep today. Holy cow. Okay, forget this. Going back to this sermon. You're like, oh, I don't know. okay, I get it. Feel through the church. You talk about it all the time. All right, so last week we, we, we get, got back into the, the book of Mark, the, the gospel of Mark, and we landed in chapter 8. And while we're in chapter 8, we started, we kind of did a recap last week, but this past week we, we wound up in a moment in Jesus' story where he is in a boat with all of his disciples, and they're traveling from one end of the Sea of Galilee to the other end of the Sea of Galilee to preach. And while they're going over there, they're going to a place called Bethsaida. Y'all say with me, Bethsaida. 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 When they're going over to Bethsaida, on the way over there, someone had the bright idea to check the, like, the, the basket of stuff, and they're like... Holy cow, we only have one loaf of bread. There's 12 of us guys. We're hungry. We haven't eaten in a while. I forgot to bring bread. And, you know, y'all remember that? I was like, man, most men do that. They kind of forget, for, tend to forget, like, the most important thing on the menu, the, the most important thing to do on the list. And they forgot the bread. They forgot the food. And they start freaking out. And they're like, oh, my gosh, how are we going to eat? How are we going to—who's going to provide for our needs? And Jesus is like, hey, y'all, chill. Chill. I got this. Don't you guys remember all the times that I fed 5,000 people? You remember the time that I fed 4,000 people? All together, I fed over 9,000 people, just men alone. So we include their wives and their kids. I have fed over 10,000-some people all together over the last few months with a little bit more than just a Lunchable. And you guys are worried about only having one stinking loaf of bread. Don't you realize that that is more than what you need? Just one loaf. And he says, I am, I am Jesus. You know, I mean, like, wake up. Are you deaf? Are you blind? Do you not see what I've been doing all these years? I mean, around you in your life. I mean, have faith in me. And that is what we said last week, that we're to have faith. Just a little side note, the, the whole story of the, the bread you know, being expanded and changing and being multiplied can very well be a sermon about our church you know, that the, God will take the few people in the church and he would multiply those people into more churches. And he will multiply those into more churches. Here in Impact City, we want to be a church that is planting churches. You know, the, the, like this would be awesome, but I want to multiply this into another building one day. And I want to multiply that into someone else's building one day and multiply that into another town. And I'm not talking about video campus. I'm talking about planting a pastor with his own congregation who is able to reach their community for the gospel. That's what church is. So when Jesus takes the bread and he takes, you know, five loaves and he makes over 5,000 people to be fed, he literally is taking the church and he is feeding the people what they need. He can very well do that in, in our lives as, as a church body. He can multiply us if we choose to follow him and be obedient to him and have faith in him. 
Side note, sorry. So Jesus says, seriously, you don't remember me? Aren't you blind? Aren't you deaf? And he starts kind of rebuking his disciples. Like, come on, guys. I mean, don't you get it? Don't you understand? Like, I am Jesus. I have, I have multiplied bread before. You just have faith in me. And he literally just, just kind of chews them out right there in the boat. And that is the last thing you hear until they reach the other side. Can you imagine the way, just the moment that felt in the boat? Like if you were to put yourself in the, in, the, in the boat seat right now and you were in the boat with Jesus and you just got chewed out by Jesus, there's that awkward silence between that moment until the end of your boat ride. I can just imagine everyone just kind of sitting there looking at each other like, okay, boss is mad. You know, like, and it's like, I, I would imagine that it'd be sort of like when you were on our car trips, when we were kids, I remember, you'd be going to like San Antonio, wherever, to the zoo, and the kid, and you'd be jumping around, and getting all active in the backseat, and your dad would literally like, <laughs> scream at you to be quiet, or like, I did this every day, my kids would jump around the backseat, I literally, I took my hand, and I slapped all their knees in a row, all three of them, six knees, pop, 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 just be quiet. And it was literally quietness. That's right. I don't spare. I don't spare the rod in my house. And so it was literally quietness in the whole car ride for the whole rest of the journey. It was just awkward. Like, oh snap, we are in trouble. <laughs> it's exactly the way it was with the disciples. Jesus is like, yo, you guys are stupid, right? And then they get in the boat and they start going to the other side, and they're just kind of like, oh man, oh man, we we really screwed up, Peter. We. I told you to have faith, you know? Like, that's—I can just imagine. So that's where we're at today. They have landed on the other side. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 8, verse 22 is where we'll be. Um, if you don't have your Bibles, the Scripture will not be on the screen. Uh, didn't get a chance to do it. But you have Bibles in the end of your chairs. Uh, if you have Bibles with you, that's as well, okay? And if you don't have a Bible uh, and, and, and you don't want to go get one from here, you can actually log on to Facebook. And the sermon notes and everything just posted on Facebook about five minutes ago. So you can go ahead and log on to Facebook, go to our Impact City Church page, and you can actually see the scripture reading for today there on Facebook. Be sure to check in as well. Let everyone know you're here and that they are missing out on a really amazing service. That was just a plug. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, are you guys ready to go? All right, Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Here we go. It says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked the blind man, him, he says, Do you see anything? And the blind man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and the sight was restored, and everything he saw clearly. And he sent him home, saying, do not even enter the village. So Jesus returns to Bethsaida, and Bethsaida is right in the same region where he fed 5,000 people. All right, so I just want you to kind of put this in perspective. 5,000 plus people in the same area, you got to believe that some of those people lived in Bethsaida. You got to just believe that because towns weren't that big back in the day. 
until 5,000 people came and they got fed. They met Jesus. They witnessed a miracle of Jesus. They went back home to their town of Bethsaida. Jesus comes back to Bethsaida. And here you see a bunch of people bringing a blind man to Jesus. And they're begging him to do something about it. They're begging Jesus to at least just touch the blind man. It kind of reminds me of the way uh, the four friends or four people brought the, the lame uh, paralytic guy to Jesus in chapter 2 of Mark. You remember that story? The guys, they come dragging this guy over to Jesus, and Jesus is inside of a house, and they can't even reach Jesus because there's so many people around. And so they say, man, what are we going to do? And one guy was a redneck. He's like, oh, let's go through the roof, you know? And so they take the blind man, and they probably put him in like a, like a blanket and kind of like, you know, you know, like a crane, uh, kind of tie it together, and they carried this guy up on the roof. They made a hole through the mud covering of the roof, and they dropped the guy down on the rope, and they were so persistent in seeing this guy to, through Jesus that they actually got him to Jesus. They, they would have just given up and said, ah, you know, I don't feel like doing this today. Oh, this is too much work to do this ministry to this man. I don't want to do this. He guy would have never been healed by Jesus. And we learned back then that if we were to reach the community of Corpus Christi, we got to be willing to get our hands dirty. That we got to be willing to break a sweat every once in a while. That if you want to see your friends and family come to know Jesus, you have to do some work. And that's exactly what the people are doing here in Bethsaida. They have been fed by Jesus in the past. They have seen a miracle by Jesus. And they are so pumped up by what God has done in their life that they want to share it with other people. All to the point that they take this blind man and say, hey, we're going to go see Jesus. And they drag him over to Jesus, and they're not just asking him politely, hey, when you get a chance, can you kind of see this, my friend? He's, he's kind of blind. No, they're begging him to do something. Begging him. How many of you guys have actually begged for God to do something? Like, really begged. I'm not saying, like, just this casual, nonchalant, I'm going to go through the motions and do a prayer. I mean, heartfelt, begging God to do something in your life, to do something for someone else, praying on your knees to where they're sore and bruised, praying to where your mouth is just tired of talking because you've been speaking so much, praying to where you have no tears left in your eyes, beg for God to do something. It's exactly what they're doing here today. They're begging for Jesus to do something for this man. And obviously Jesus has made that much of an impact on these people that they know that he can do something for this man the way he did something for them in the past. Which is a lesson to us that if we want to see people change the way God has changed us in our lives, that we need to be willing to go to the point of begging God for that. Don't complain about the people around you being bad around you. Don't complain about the people around you being heathens or they don't understand. And you're not even doing a darn thing about it. You're not even begging God to change them. These people are begging God to change this man. Begging him to heal him. Jesus' presence among the people was so great back in chapter 6 when he fed them that they were willing to go the extra mile for this guy. And we should be willing to do the same. We all should be willing to do that. Look, listen, Jesus did not free us from sin and save you from hell just so you can have everything that your heart desires in life and have, live a happy, great life. That's not the purpose. That's a great, 
That's a great part of it. You're going to be great. You're going to be happy knowing Jesus. You're going to be content. You're going to be filled with joy. But that's not the reason why he died for you. Jesus didn't go to hell and conquer death in the grave. He didn't hang on the cross and, and die this excruciating death on the cross where he bled out for you and died of suffocation and was in pain and, and just impaled with a spear. He didn't do all of that just so you can sit at home, read your devotional, drink some coffee, and talk to your girlfriends. That's not what he died for. He didn't die just for us to have all the pleasures and comforts of the world. He died for us to be on mission for him. He actually died for us not to be just recipients of his word, but to be contributors to his word. Okay, James 1.22, I love the way the NLT says this. It says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only making a fool of yourself. Like, don't just come to church and listen to me yell at you for a while. Go out there and do everything I'm asking you to do. Don't just read your Bible once a week whenever the app pops up and asks you to do it, and then just be like, oh, that's nice, then you close your Bible. No, go do what it asks you to do. Otherwise, you're just an idiot. That's what the Bible says. It says, you're making fools of yourselves. For those of us here who don't do what the Bible asks us to do, the Bible says that you are just making an idiot of yourself. Because what kind of a moron would listen to great advice and not do it? Ouch. I need some coffee after that one. It's in God's Word. It's in God's Word. We are to be doers of the Word, to be active in our faith. So Jesus, and you can quote me on that one, by the way. So Jesus seeing this persistent faith of the people, this faith that says, we're going to beg you for something. And we're not simply going to just kind of nonchalantly hope that it happens. And we're going to persistently beg you that this blind man is healed. He sees this faith and he is, he, he takes the guy by the hand and he leads him out of the village. Note to yourselves, Jesus is always humbling himself, his leadership before the sick and the weak. As a rabbi, he has every right not to touch this guy because this guy is, he's, he's, he's blind. He's not perfect. Rabbis and teachers are to be pure before God. And to touch someone that was sick or hurting, whether it's a leper or a layman or a cripple or a deaf or a blind man, was to be kind of looked down upon. And Jesus says, forget that. This guy needs my help. And he touches him and he leads him out, not just by the shoulder, not from the back, but he holds his hand, a very intimate part of your body. When someone holds your hand, you feel butterflies in your stomach. Amen? I know some of your girls are like, oh, yes. That's the way I feel when Sarah holds my hand, you know? Like, I just, I feel so butterflies. But he holds the man, and he walks him out of the village. The same thing that he did in chapter 7, just a few pages back, where he takes the deaf guy. Remember that guy? That he comes to the town, and they bring him a deaf guy. It's kind of a similar story, in fact. He had just fed 4,000 people in this side of, the, of town. He fed those 4,000 people, and then those 4,000 people who, by the way, were not even Jewish, they were, they were not believing in God, they brought him a deaf guy, and Jesus took the deaf guy, led him out of the room into a private room, and he healed him there. He spit on his hands, he put wet fingers, kind of like a, a wet loogie, into his ear, and he kind of healed the man's hearing. Jesus does this. He led him away and, and, and took him away privately. Now, we don't know why he does this. I don't know if it's that Jesus just doesn't want the publicity 
at the moment, if he's trying to kind of hide the miracle just so that no one knows it, so that it doesn't kind of blow up too fast. I don't know if it's that maybe he wanted to create a one-on-one experience with, with the Son of God and, a, and a, a man who's going to be changed at that moment. Whatever the reason is, he takes this guy by the hand and he heals him outside of the village. Okay? And he's doing this a few times in the last few chapters. Check this out. It says, He took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, which is just weird, and he had just spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? Back up real quick. Why don't we do that anymore whenever we're praying for someone to be healed? Just be like, I pray that you would be healed. You know, it's just kind of like, like, I'm sorry. You want to follow scripture, Jesus was spitting on people. I think we need to be spitting on each other. Okay, sorry. Side note, ADD, real bad. And so he spit on him and on his eyes and laid his hands on him and asked him, do you see anything? And he looked and he looked and he looked up and looked up and said, but they look like trees walking. Okay, now Jesus does something different here. He does something out of the ordinary and kind of different from what he's done in every other healing, okay? And I'm not talking about the spitting part. We know he, this is kind of something he does often. Jesus likes to spit a lot, okay? I, but what I'm talking about here, if you've noticed this, is that Jesus is actually healing this guy in two stages. He's not healing him in one stage. He's healing him in two stages, it's not a quick response like that. Now, um, notice that first when Jesus touched him, when Jesus first touched the guy and he healed him the first time, the results weren't what the man wanted. Like when Jesus healed him the first time, the guy wasn't like boom, bam, healed. In fact, if you were to look at all of the other healings of Jesus, in fact, Jesus healed eight blind men throughout his ministry. When you look at all those other healings, they were healed by a quick, simple touch or a simple word from God. That's all it was. It was a quick, instantaneous healing. But for some reason, this time, it took two stages. And notice that he didn't just get healed. And, and, and when Jesus healed him the first time, and he opened his eyes, and he sees, oh man, all I see is like people, but they kind of look like trees walking. You know, I don't see very well. Notice that he didn't sit back and say, oh man, forget you, God. Forget you, Jesus. You're a fake. I knew you couldn't do this. Look what you did. You didn't even fully heal me. I've heard stories about you, about healing people with like one simple touch or healing people with a word. I've heard stories about you, but obviously you're a fake. You're a phony. It's just a gimmick. You probably just want my money. You know, whatever it is, uh, and then he just walked away. Notice he didn't say that. I think the reason why Christ healed in two steps One was to teach his disciples some faith, because obviously they're dealing with faith issues in the boat. But two, to teach us some faith. To teach us some faith. Many times we find ourselves asking God to do something. Amen? We always feel like, God, can you you do this? And we find ourselves asking God to, to help us and save us from, you know, some injustice that the world has brought upon us, whether it's you know, well, you know, get a traffic ticket or, you know, whatever it is. God, help me with this. Or God, help, you know, take care of me. Or whether God, you're praying God to help you out of some stupid mistake you made. 
Like, oh, God, why did I go drinking and driving that night? Oh, God, why did I, you know, oh, I shouldn't have hit that guy. You know, whatever it was. <laughs> or maybe you're like, oh, I mean, God, just, just help me with my finances. Help me get my life in order. But yet you're still doing dumb things and partying and, and, and just wasting and swaddling your money like the prodigal son. Whatever it is, you're still screwed up. And you're like, God, please help me get through this. Or whatever it is in your life, we have had prayers to God where we ask him to do something for us. And then when God answers us, it's not the answer we wanted. I remember praying prayers that were very specific. God, please, God, God I want a blue Ford. You know, I would never want a Ford, sorry. I want a blue Toyota Tundra, brand new, with a two-inch lift. Yeah, like, you know, specific prayers like that. It's very selfish prayers, by the way. Or, God, please help my family. I want to live in a house. I want it to be about uh, 2,200 square feet. I want to have temperature air. And heat. I want, like, all your specific prayers, and God doesn't answer them the way you want. God, I want this job, and you don't get the job. But what if God doesn't want you to have that job? Like, what if you're praying and praying and praying, God, I want to be hired on with this company. It's the best company. It's got amazing benefits. It's so good. And God's like, "Mm -mm, mm-mm, mm-mm, that's not for you. What if God doesn't want you, what if God doesn't want that boy that you think is the one to be the one for you? And you're praying, like, God, just make him see me. God, just, I just hope he kind of, like, looks my way. And like, as, a, as a girl, you're kind of like on butterflies because he held your hand one time and it was kind of an awkward moment, you know? And, and you're like, God, please, I want him to be mine. And God's like, that dude's a psycho. Like, you don't even know, girl. <laughs> or you say like, what, what, what if God wants you, this is a tough one, what if God wants you to endure the cancer just a little bit longer? What if God wants you to endure sickness a little bit longer? What if God has it in his plan that he's going to heal you, but, but in healing, it means that you're going to have to die. We talk about that. We pray for healing. That's what we do, you know. But we don't realize, because our minds don't think that way, because we're selfish, that when someone passes away, they are healed. Praise God for that. Now, it hurts us here on earth, because our humanly nature is to desire to have people around us because we love them. But we don't realize that God loves them more. He can do a lot better job at caring for them and loving them than we ever could. So what if, what if that is the answer to the prayer that you don't want to hear? God, please heal them. Please heal them. And God takes them from you. And God, you didn't heal them. Yeah, he did. He took them home. They're healed. Praise God for that. Don't be selfish and, 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 and like put them on, on respirators and keep them on life support for 15 years and in pain and agony. And God's like, I'm trying to take the guy. You know, I'm trying to heal the guy. And you're like persistently going against me. What if God wants you to endure pain a little bit longer? What if that's the answer? What if God allowed your child to pass away for some unexplained reason? I, I saw a, a video on the news just last week where a girl just came back from spring break and just died. Like she was on a soccer field. So I mean, she, just, she just died. She got sick and died. An unexplainable disease, they said. They have no idea what killed her. Imagine the parents just being struck by that. I know a, a, a family right now, and praise God, I won't even mention their names, but they, they found out that they were pregnant with twins at a late age in their, in their life. They're in their 40s. And they found out they were pregnant with twins. They got so happy. A week later, they miscarried one baby out of the twins. A week later, they were about three months along already. They had no idea. They miscarried one baby. The other baby is hanging on. It's still there. 
But they were just like, well, why are we going through this? Why are we going through this? And see, we'll pray these prayers and we'll pray for God to do something awesome in our lives. God, please heal this person. God, please heal my father. Please take care of my mother. Please, God, raise me. Let my kid be good. Or God, please, please take care of me. Let me get this job. And then it doesn't happen the way we want it to. God doesn't give you the job you want. God doesn't give you the life you want. God doesn't give you the boy or girl you want to be married to. And you think it's good and then it's not good. And you know what you say? You say, screw you, God. Forget you, God. How can you be a good God if you didn't do good things for me in my life and why should I even trust you God look at me look at my life look how messed up you you allowed my life to get and all because of you and you didn't answer my prayer and then you get mad at God and you walk away from God because you believe that God is for some reason against you like God is actually against you that's like totally against scripture when people say man God just don't like me he hates me that is a lie that is the dumbest thing read your Bible the Bible says God is for us. God is always for us. He is never against us. So quit acting like God is against you because he doesn't give you what you want. Many of you will push back and say, but pastor, pastor, in Matthew chapter 7, there's a verse that says, ask and it will be given to you. And you're right, there is a a scripture that says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find it. And all that is great, but if you look at that scripture in its full context throughout all the gospels, it is portraying God as a heavenly father who loves and cares about you. If your heavenly father loves and cares about you so much, he is going to protect you from things that are not good from you. If Ryan prays that he wants a pet rattlesnake, which he has, and I tell him, no, you can't have the pet rattlesnake. Am I a bad dad or am I a good dad? I'm a good dad. But dad, I, this is the one rattlesnake I've always wanted for my life. It, it is the most beautiful rattlesnake. I know this is what God wants for me. Just grant me my rattlesnake. And I'm like, you're an idiot. <laughs> like, you know, you're not going to get the rattlesnake. Because he's our loving father. He, grants, he doesn't grant all the prayers the way you want them to be granted. Because the way we want our prayers to be granted is not the way that is best for us most of the time. You may think it's good for you, but it's not. Because we have a very narrow-minded view of life as human beings. It's simple. We think we know what's right, but God is over there shaking his head. He's like, dude, I see your future. Like, it's not good for you to have this job. It's not good for you to be with this person. It's not good for you to and want this person to keep living because they're going to endure a life full of pain. Let me call them back now. That is faith. So we have to have persistent faith in him when our prayers are not answered the way we want them to be. Just like the blind man stayed there when, God, when Jesus healed him and it didn't turn out the way he thought it was going to turn out. It may be that God is working out something way better for you. That God has something better for you. That's why he's not answering the prayer the way you want it to be answered or not answering the prayer in, within your time period that you expect it to be answered. We have to trust that, you know, maybe he's acting has something better for you. I often think about the, the image of the little girl who's got the little teddy bear, right? And she's standing before Jesus, and she's like holding the bear, and Jesus is like, give me the bear. And, and she's like, no, I, I love him. He is my little teddy bear. And he's got this huge bear behind his back. And he's like, trust me. 
Like, just trust me, I, I got something better for you. And she's like, but this is mine. Many a times, that's how we are in prayer. Where we think we want something, and we're so just, you know, we, we believe that this is the way God wants it. God wouldn't want me not to have this, but God's got something better for you. It may be that he wants us to endure a little bit of temporary pain and suffering in order to glorify his name somehow. I don't understand why it happens. I don't get it, but it does. When Schuyler was born, she spent nine days in the NICU. During those nine days, Sarah and I grew in our faith in him because we had never been tested at any point in our lives to really focus and, and rely on him. And during that time, we kept asking, okay, why are we going through this? And then we stopped asking why and started asking what halfway through. Okay, God, what is it that you want to teach us at this moment? What is it that you want me to learn from this trial? I'm going through suffering. I'm going through pain. I don't understand why my baby is in an incubator and, and like it's got tubes coming out of this poor little child. Why is this happening to us? And lo and behold, we met a, a nurse there, and Sarah knew this nurse, and we started talking to her and got reconnected. Before you know it, we, I led her husband to Christ. Before you know it, I baptized them. And, you know, and so it was a relationship that God had grew out of that suffering of our child. Would I take the suffering away from the child? In, in my earthly, fleshly feelings, yes. But in my spiritual feelings, no, because I knew that God already was taking care of that baby the whole time. We have to know that sometimes we go through suffering because God has a bigger and greater plan for us through our suffering. Sometimes that we have to go through tribulations and suffering so that God can be glorified. And we say, no, God would never want anything bad to happen to me. No, yes, God desires things to happen to you so that he can be glorified. He allows things to happen. It doesn't make him happy when it happens, but it, he allows it to happen because he knows that he takes care of you anyway. It may be that that relationship that you're praying so hard for God to save, maybe you're in a relationship with someone already, you're like, God, just, it's just going so bad, it's going so right. God, please save my relationship, God. Make him smart. Just like, just make the guy smart. I know, or maybe the guys are thinking, make the girl not so much of a crazy lunatic. Like, save me, and it's, like, control this relationship. And God's thinking, I'm trying to break you up because they're, you're not good for each other. And you're like, God, just make him smart. And he's thinking he'll never get smart. I already know this soul, and he is never going to get out of this rut. And if I bless you by making your relationship last, I'm actually cursing you because you're going to be into a lot of sin, struggle, heartache, abuse, maybe, lust, whatever it is. It's not good for you. So whatever the reason is, we know that God has got everything under control. Because after all, look what happened to the blind man. Jesus heals him the first time, and it's not what he, 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 he expected off and said, I forget you, God. I'm tired of you. I can't believe you're just a fake. And I know my friends told me to believe you, but I don't believe in you now because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. And he runs off. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't just run off and do that. He stays there. And he tells Jesus, this is not what I expected, God. This is not what I expected, and he stays there. This is what happens is then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. You see, Jesus worked it out eventually. Jesus worked it out eventually. Romans 8.28 is uh, one of Sarah's 
well, actually, Sarah's favorite verse. She, it's been her favorite verse for like forever. I remember when we were dating, she would quote this verse whenever stuff like this would happen. She'd be like, remember, you guys are all looking at Sarah right now. You guys are like, Romans 8.28. And she'd be like, man, babe, Romans 8.28, you know. And she would say these things. And, and it was actually one of the first verses I memorized because she would always say it to me all the time. And it says, it says, and we know that for all of those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But God works out all things for the good according to his purpose. Now that alone right there is an amazing scripture of, of confidence and comfort in the Bible. When I read that scripture, when I hear that scripture, I feel confident. I feel like God has got my back that no matter how bad it gets, it's going to be good. And you know what? It's an amazing scripture no matter how, what happens in life that if I am called according to his purpose, that he has got my back and he will take care of me. He would watch over me because I am called according to his purpose. And rest assured, if you are saved here today, if you know Jesus, if you follow Jesus, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, you are called according to his purpose and not your own. You are called according to his purpose. And that's an amazing scripture to go by. And it's a confidence builder that if you're loving, and and if you love Jesus and you follow Jesus and you surrendered your life to Jesus, that everything is going to be okay no matter how messed up or screwed up or jacked up it gets. But that's not the best part of that scripture. That's not the best part. The best part comes in verse 29 and 30. And I love this next part because that was an amazing part. Good scripture, by the way, babe. But the next scriptures are even better. Read on to verse 29. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. For those who he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. So that means that God knows you, that he predestined you in some way. But what does Jeremiah say? That before you were born, I knew you. I fashioned you in your mother's womb. I know everything about you. I know all the hair on your head. I know everything about you. I know you as an individual. It means that if I know you and if I called you, which means if you surrender your life to me, I have called you. And because I have called you, I have justified you, which means that no matter what sins you have, they are justified. They are wiped away. They are washed clean because you are called. You are now justified. And if you are justified, if you are called, if you are justified, you have been also, um, uh, you're justified by the death of Jesus on the cross. If you're called, justified, you will be glorified. Let me say that again because I don't think that got you guys because you're just giving me blank stares. If Jesus has called you, If he has called you, if you felt a need to surrender your life to Jesus, he has called you. In order for you to answer that call, he has justified you, which means he has wiped away your sin when he died upon the cross. And if he has called you and justified you, you better be darn well to know that he is going to glorify you in some way. Amen? Come on, that should pump you up. Unless you're not called or not justified, then that should worry you. Because if you're called and justified, no matter how, if you're a follower of Jesus, no matter how messed up life gets, you will be glorified at the end. And you know what that glorification is? It's not a big, awesome mansion. It's not a Rolls Royce. 
It's not a $60,000 jet or $60 million jet. You know what it is? It's the chance to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ when you pass away. That is the simplicity of the gospel. That he, if, if you're willing to surrender your life, you are called by him. And he will justify you. And one day you will be glorified when you will sit with Jesus and worship him forever in heaven. That is the best gift that you can ever receive. And the awesome thing is it is a free gift. And we need to have faith in the fact that he has done that for us. These, these scriptures right here, 28, 29, and 30 in Romans chapter 8, should secure your salvation. You shouldn't question whether or not you're saved because God says, if you are called, I have justified you. Don't you worry. If you are justified, then you are going to be glorified one day through me. Your salvation is secure, locked kept tight is an inheritance that you will receive one day. Amen? This means that you will spend eternity in heaven if you surrender to Jesus Christ, if you have persistent faith in him. So people don't get discouraged when you don't get the job you want. Don't get discouraged in that relationship that you think is the best thing that's ever happened in your life fails after three years. Don't be discouraged when you think that, 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 that the cancer has, it has, it has to be healed. And, and God says, I'm calling you home, brother. Just don't worry about it. But through that process, you're going to witness to so many people. They're going to see my glory. Whatever it is that you're going through, know that if you are a child of God, if you have been surrendering your life to God and you have surrendered, you have said, I want to be saved by Jesus Christ. And you have entered into baptism with him as a showing of public display of who uh, what has happened in your life, if you're at that point, no matter what happens in your life, no matter death or, or, or anything that comes to you, you will be glorified. And that is the faith that we can have in Jesus Christ. Church, let's pray. Father God, just pray that you would just give us a persistent faith in you. I pray that you would just grant us this, 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 this sense of being called to you, Lord, that we may answer that call. And maybe that's you here today. Maybe you've been coming to church and you'll know if you've been called yet and, and, and you're feeling right now that your, your knee is shaking, your, your heart is beating, you think, I'm feeling called right now, that something is happening to me right now. I'm feeling like God is calling me right now. And yeah, I, I tell you, what, you better answer that call. Because that is God reaching out to you in an amazing amount of grace and hope for you that you can just take for free. And if you answer that call, that he would justify you. He would justify you of all your sins. He would cleanse you of all your wrongdoing, past, present, and future. And brother, that is you here today. It is like water on dry bones. It quenches you so well when you feel that feeling. And you experience that today. And if he has called you, he will justify you. And one day you will be glorified before your father, before your creator in heaven. He will bring you in with honor because he loves you. and He died for you. He sent his son to die for you. God, may we have surrender today. The Lord, may we have persistent faith that even though you may slay us, at times, and we may feel like we are not getting what we deserve, that we have faith in you, that all of it is working out in eternal glory for us. God, we love you. We praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.